to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for the day. These are the words of President Abraham Lincoln, spoken as he struggled to lead the country through the Civil War, the most tumultuous and divided period in our history. In today's Gospel reading, we witness an individual who has come to the very same conclusion as Lincoln and thus falls at the feet of our Lord, and upon her knees prays, Lord, help me. We thank God that today we are not beset by the terror of a civil war. That said, we are no strangers to the plight of violence and the sickness of division. Daily our screens are filled with news of violence in our cities, ideological warfare in our communities, and both our nation and the world at large seem to continually become more divided along party and economic lines. Thus, perhaps today more than ever, our need for healing on both individual and communal levels stares us directly in the face, our reflections pleading with us to find a remedy. Fellow sinners, the fact that our brokenness is becoming increasingly clear is itself evidence of the Holy Spirit at work among us. As the late great Joseph Ratzinger taught, the Holy Spirit convinces the world and us of sin, not to humiliate us, but to make us true and healthy, to save us. Accordingly, the very same grace that convicts us of our brokenness brings us, at least weekly, to the celebration of the Eucharist, so that like Lincoln and the Canaanite woman, within the very movements of the liturgy, we might be driven to our knees before the throne of the Prince of Peace, the incarnate Word and wisdom of God, who alone holds the cure for our many diseases. For as our Gospel reading for today tells us, ultimately, Peace will not be had through politics, but through prayer and by partaking of the twofold feast of grace the Church offers us in the form of word and sacrament. The contextual setting of our Gospel reading for today from the 15th chapter of Matthew's Gospel is actually not so different from the contemporary context already described, but in order to see this, we will need to backtrack a bit. Our Gospel begins by telling us that Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Already a question arises, where did Jesus withdraw from? Before our episode for today, Jesus and his disciples had been at Gennesaret, which is located in the north of Galilee. There, Jesus was engaged in a very heated discussion with a group of Pharisees and scribes over the tradition of the elders regarding ritual purity laws. Within this discussion, the Pharisees questioned Jesus as to why his disciples eat without washing their hands, and our Lord responds in a twofold manner. First, Jesus accuses the Pharisees of hypocrisy, telling them that for the sake of their traditions, they have no qualms 
about rendering void the word of God. Second, Jesus says to the Pharisees, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. Jesus later explains to his disciples that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. It is this discussion at Genesaret which Jesus withdraws from to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This is no ordinary movement from place to place. Rather, the movement itself is packed with meaning. The reason being that Genesaret is in the territory of Israel, while the district of Tyre and Sidon is in Gentile territory. Thus, the movement alone would be enough to raise the ears of the Pharisees in shock. But they would have felt an interior impulse to run for the hills when we hear that Jesus is there confronted by a Canaanite woman, and this for two reasons. First, she was an unclean Gentile, and second, she was a she. No upright and self-respecting Jewish male at this time would be seen openly conversing with a woman, and for a moment, it seems as though Jesus intends to play the Pharisee with her. However, as always, our Lord will surprise us, precisely to wake us out of our complacency. But before going on with this, let us consider our first reading for today. Our first reading for today comes from chapter 56 of the book of the prophet Isaiah. From the Ambo we hear verses 1, 6, and 7 read. However, in order to gain a more complete understanding of the passage, we will explore the intervening verses as well. The opening verse of this particular passage is the key to its understanding and reads, Thus says the Lord, Maintain justice and do what is right. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Maintain justice. How exactly might we go about living this virtue, which is so close to the heart of the church's social teaching? In his work, The Catholic and Manichaean Ways of Life, St. Augustine defines the virtue of justice as love serving alone that which is loved, and thus ruling rightly. For his part, in the Secunda Secundae of his Summa Theologica, St. Thomas Aquinas defines justice by its object which is use, or giving each one what he or she is owed. These two definitions, then, provide us with an understanding of justice as an ordered love that ultimately loves God above all and loves all other things for God in such a way as to ensure that all have what is needed in order for their lives to flourish. It is this understanding of justice that this opening verse calls for, and which the following verse tells us leads to the following result. Happy is the one who does this, whoever holds fast to it. In short, living a just life leads to a happy life, or, said differently, living a good and just life is the happy life. Although happiness is not understood here as a fleeting psychological state, but rather as a stable quality or state of life. Thus the same idea is being expressed in these opening two verses that appear in the Beatitudes from our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, each of which begins with the Greek word makarios, which although translated as blessed, could just as easily be translated as happy. The remaining verses of this passage give us a macro view of the society characterized by justice, a society which may be succinctly described as all-inclusive. However, what we are dealing with here is authentic inclusivity, as opposed to the distorted form we hear often tossed about in our public discussions today. The distortion of inclusivity popular today is rather indifference for one's neighbor and oneself, 
a disregard for the truly good that insists we look the other way or ignore our brokenness. The distortion of inclusivity has its referent in the isolated individual and upholds and reaffirms our false attempts at self-deification, our false attempts to define reality on our own terms. By way of contrast, authentic inclusivity deals with objective reality in all its messiness. Authentic inclusivity is an attitude that says, I see both you and I are broken, each in our own ways, and I will try to the greatest extent that my brokenness allows me to love you as a child of God, because love is ultimately the only thing that can heal us, that can make us both whole again. This inclusive love has the power to transform, as the subsequent verses 3-6 to teach us. It has the power to make the eunuch fruitful and foreigners family. And it does so precisely because the referent of this love is God, and therefore it is a love that desires the absolute good of the other, and thereby expresses authentic justice. It is this inclusive love that brings all to harmoniously sing a hymn of praise on God's holy mountain, which is the praise our God desires. Why? Because only this praise, only the praise sung to the God in whom alone we can be fully united with one another, can make the human family eternally joyful. Thus we read in verses 6 and 7 of this chapter from Isaiah, And foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, to become His servants, all who keep the Sabbath without profaning it, and hold fast to my covenant, them I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This verse describes God's intention for the human family from all eternity. And it is the same intention which drives all our Savior does, including the conversation we witness today between himself and the Canaanite woman. The conversation ultimately highlights the contrast between the Pharisees and the woman who approached Jesus with completely opposite attitudes. The first contrast we notice is that whereas those who were descended from God's chosen people, the Pharisees, did not recognize Jesus for who he is, the foreign woman does. The Canaanite woman calls Jesus Lord, which St. Paul tells us in his first letter to the Corinthians, none can so confess except by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thus, we see the Canaanite woman cooperating with the grace of the Holy Spirit here and the rejection of that same grace by the Pharisees. Accordingly, in this episode, we see taking place what was described in our first reading from Isaiah. The outsiders, that is the Gentiles, are becoming the insiders, being reconciled to communion with God by encountering the Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Therefore, in addition to being a real historical figure, the Canaanite woman is also representative of all the fallen human family. And notice please what has allowed for this encounter to take place. In the first instance, what makes the encounter possible is Jesus going out to a territory far off from his own country. The physical geographic movement here symbolizes the incarnation of the Son of God, who in assuming human nature, humbly sets aside the divine prerogative and lives as though far from his eternal home with the Father, though never leaving the Father's embrace in his divinity. It is this humbling, this descent of the divine Son, that ultimately affords us the opportunity to ascend to the Heavenly Father through, with, and in Him. Thus, Jesus' physical geographic movement here 
symbolizes this, as his leaving Jewish territory for Gentile territory is precisely what enables the Canaanite woman to draw close to him. But there is a second factor that makes this encounter possible, and it is the Canaanite woman. The great daring and effort on the part of this woman, who experiences much pain and distress in solidarity with her daughter, brings her to the feet of Jesus. For although it is her daughter who is possessed, it is she, who St. John Chrysostom tells us in his 52nd homily on Matthew, who experiences the disease of her daughter in its full weight and with full consciousness. Given the woman's obvious love for her daughter, the response of Jesus is downright off-putting to our ears. Initially, he says nothing. He remains silent. And when our Lord finally does open his mouth, he says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why, we wonder, would our Lord deal such a devastating blow to this woman's hope? Our bewilderment might even verge on anger as she continues to beg Jesus, and he says to her, It is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. If the first response was devastating, the second might well be crushing. For Jesus here seems to speak of the woman as less than human. What on earth is Jesus doing here? What is God doing here? And how often don't we ask ourselves the very same thing when we see and experience the pain of sickness, division, and violence in our communities? Every time this reading comes around in our liturgical calendar, there are some who try and make the case that the Canaanite woman is actually teaching Jesus in this episode. They suggest that her persistence moves Jesus to see that he has not only been sent to the lost sheep of Israel, as he says in his initial response to her, but rather to the entire human family, Jew and Gentile alike as discussed in relation to our first reading from Isaiah. However, such a reading simply does not harmonize with the text itself. The reason being that, as already discussed, Jesus has intentionally moved from Jew to Gentile territory. Moreover, such a reading does not harmonize with the larger context provided by the Gospels, which find Jesus reaching out to outsiders repeatedly. The most famous example, perhaps, being the Samaritan woman at the well from chapter 4 of John's Gospel. Okay then, enough said about what is not going on here. But what is going on? What is God doing through this interaction with the Canaanite woman? St. Augustine of Hippo is helpful for making sense of this. For Augustine, what we see taking place in the conversation between Jesus and the Canaanite woman is a lesson in the life of prayer. Often, God does not answer our prayers immediately. From Augustine's perspective, as he details in his letter to Proba, this is God's way of expanding our capacity to receive what he desires to give us. In commenting on this episode in Sermon 77b, the Doctor of Grace applies the same logic and suggests that our Lord remain silent at first so that the Canaanite woman's desire might be enkindled. Accordingly, the idea is that by making her persist, the woman's desire for what she asks grows. And notice please the endurance displayed by the woman. This too exemplifies something important in the life of prayer. Undeterred by the initial responses or lack thereof she receives from Jesus, she continues to ask, seek, and knock, just as Jesus teaches us to do in the 7th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. This endurance is not an endurance of pride that demands one be given what one is entitled to. Rather, it is an endurance informed by the virtue of humility, which patiently waits for a gift. 
It is the virtue of humility which has ultimately been the difference between the Canaanite woman and the Pharisees. In their pride of being members of God's chosen people Israel, the Pharisees have failed to see the presence of God before them. In other words, their pride blinds them. In contrast, the Canaanite woman's humility has the opposite effect. It clears her vision, and she sees who Jesus is and how she ought to approach him. The Canaanite woman's humility enables her to recognize that she has not lived up to her potential as one created in the image of God. And so she says, Yes, I am less than I should be, and I know that I cannot demand anything from you, but I also know that I only need a crumb, a little morsel of what you have to be whole. In response to this humble request, our Lord exclaims, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you desire. And we are told that the woman's daughter was healed. This ending to the scene confirms two things for us. First, it signifies that the one speaking is indeed the one whose word creates reality. Notice the language Jesus uses to grant the woman's request and thereby heal her daughter is the very same language used by God at creation in Genesis 1, let it be. Second, the granting of the Canaanite woman's request echoes the authentic inclusivity of God's salvation in Jesus Christ discussed earlier in relation to the passage from Isaiah. For the healing comes to an outsider, to one like you and me, following the dynamics of an authentic inclusivity that confronts the messiness of reality rather than ignoring our brokenness. My friends, in our encounter with the Word of God today, we are both provided with a glimpse of the just society God desires for the human family and are taught that while we must expend great effort in its realization, only God can bring it about. This is precisely why regular reception of the Eucharist is so important, not only for ourselves, but for the whole of society. In our Lord's Prayer, we ask that God's kingdom be realized among us, and we move towards that realization both in the sign of peace we exchange and most of all in the Eucharist we share. It is in the Eucharistic liturgy, therefore, that the transformation of our society from the broken world we experience to something closer to what God intends for the human family begins. Therefore, let the humility of Lincoln and the Canaanite woman be ours as we echo the prayer of the centurion. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul and our souls will be healed. When we receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the incarnate Son of God in humility, the grace which it imparts comes to life within us, so that we might bring healing to our world by living lives which proclaim the justice and peace of God's kingdom. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.